This episode is sponsored by Gentex Corporation. Gentex is a longtime supplier of electro-optical products for the global automotive, aerospace, and fire protection industries. Visit www.gentex.com to check out the latest in digital vision, connected car, and dimmable glass technologies. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shift, a podcast about mobility. I'm Pete Bigelow, your host and reporter at the Automotive News. Pleased to be joined today by Gene Bertachevsky, CEO and co-founder of Sela Nanotechnologies, a Bay Area battery technology startup. I didn't draw it up this way, but Gene is the latest in the string of recent guests here on the Shift podcast who had a leadership role at Tesla in the company's formative days. In November, we had J.B. Straubel on the podcast. In early February, Selena Mikolajczyk was here. And today, Gene Bertachevsky, who was Tesla's principal engineer on the Roadster battery. It's interesting how all three and others have taken what they've learned at Tesla and applied it elsewhere in meaningful ways. If there's a common thread, all three, I'd say, have a keen understanding and deep appreciation for just how hard it is to make big dents in this EV transition. And they nonetheless are out there tackling huge problems anyway. At Sela, Gene, his co-founder, and his team are engineering a next-generation silicone anode material that replaces graphite. They're working with Mercedes-Benz, and they're already in production with at least one consumer product. Here to discuss that and more, without further ado, please welcome Sela Nanotechnology CEO and co-founder, Gene Bertachewski. Gene, it's great to have you here today. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Pete. Kick this off a little bit by uh, telling us about Sela. What is it that differentiates you from some of the other battery startups out there? Sure. We're a next-generation battery technology company. Um, we currently make uh, the world's best uh, silicon-based anode, which replaces the graphite anode in lithium-ion batteries. The graphite anode's been the standard for 32 years now. And when you replace the graphite with our technology, you can get a 20 to 40% increase in energy density, which can translate to longer range. Uh, you can also get dramatically faster recharge times. Uh, we can deliver for customers 15 minutes, even even less in the future. And uh, maybe maybe just as importantly, you can localize your supply chain. We can produce this anywhere in the world, and, and we're building our first uh, large-scale manufacturing plant in, uh, in North America here in Washington State. So a lot of advantages with the next-generation technology. And the thing that probably differentiates us the most is we're the only next generation battery tech that ships commercially today. So we're in a, a consumer device called the Whoop. A lot of units out there for 18 months now, no issues. I think we're also the only ones who've announced a, a supply agreement with an automaker. Uh, and that's with Mercedes, who will be bringing our technology starting with their with their G-Wagon. All right. Uh, a lot of good stuff to dive in on uh, here. But first, I'm curious... What is the Whoop? Yeah, the, the Whoop is a, a a sleep and recovery fitness tracker. It's got a five-day battery life in part thanks to us. It's got folks like Patrick Mahomes wearing it, helping win the Super Bowl. But it's, you know, it's for, for athletes. And and the, the key for us was really to prove our technology works in the market because it's one thing to show battery data. It's one thing to show sort of lab results. It's a whole other thing to ship. And there's a lot of issues you don't really learn uh, until you get into into mass production. And so the the chemistry that's in there is identical to what will be in the electric vehicles that we ship in. As your listeners might know, 
the fundamental chemistry doesn't change very much in batteries, whether they're small or big, and that's what we produce. And so proving that it works in a, in a device like the Whoop is in part proof that it will work at in automotive batteries once we have the production scale for that. Thinking like fundamentally, then you're not focused on moving on to some new dynamic chemistry that's different than lithium ion. You're you're more so saying, how do you make lithium ion better? And and that's through taking out the graphite. Yeah. And, and you know, Pete, that's really the only meaningful, impactful thing we can do this decade. So folks are building lithium-ion factories at a breakneck pace. We've got you know millions of electric vehicles worth of, fa- of those factories already built. By the end of the decade, there'll probably be 30 million cars worth of lithium-ion factories. And so if your technology isn't 100% compatible with those factories, you're talking about rebuilding you know tens of millions of electric cars worth of battery factories. And so chemistries like ours, technologies like ours that drop seamlessly into those gigafactories aren't sort of just nice to have, they're an absolute requirement if you actually want to have an impact on electrification this decade. And so that's what we do. Now, it's still, look, it's fundamentally a completely different chemistry. Graphite is an intercalation-based material. Silicon is a conversion-based material. It's really hard to make this work. People worked at this for 15 years, and we're you know the only ones who can fully replace graphite today in the market. So it's, it, it is a revolution. It's just a revolution in parts. You can imagine in the future uh, replacing the cathode with something more fundamental as well. You can imagine upgrading the separator technology. You know, so uh, we think of it as a revolution in parts. What was the secret sauce over those years that enabled you to, to eliminate the graphite and move to the silicon anode that, that was so vexing for others, perhaps? You know, it's not any one thing. Ideas are are cheap. Ideas are a dime a dozen. Um, execution is what really separates um, those that ship from those that don't. And for us, what that what that looked like was iterating tens of thousands of times. We we iterated something like fifty five thousand times on the synthesis of this material that we create. And a lot of that was had to do with building the systems that are able to repeatably and extremely accurately measure and test very small quantities of next generation materials because you can't produce this stuff in large volume to start. And so we literally went through 55,000 iterations before we nailed it. And we're now getting closer to 100,000 iterations as we continue to improve it. Um, And our R&D labs run 24-7 to synthesize new variants every single day. So that's a piece of it. And of course, you know, another piece is having really brilliant scientists and engineers that are then putting really creative ideas into that, into that system, into that R&D engine, if you will. So you really need both. And, and one is not enough. You alluded to this a little bit before, but it's one thing to have a, a great idea or even one thing to have a breakthrough technology, but to uh, be able to manufacture it at scale is, is another essential part of, of that breakthrough. That's right. And and you can't just go figure out a cool technology and then say, you know what, now we'll make it manufacturable. It doesn't work that way. I think a lot of a lot of folks also get this wrong. So we did three things very, very early on in our company's life. We constrained our technology that we would work on to be 100% compatible with downstream gigafactories. So we did this in 2011 when there wasn't a single gigafactory in the world. We were sort of just shipping the, you know, the Roadster was the only electric car out there at the time. But our our view was that by the time our technology was ready, there'd be many, many gigafactories. And, and we were right. 
And so having to be 100% compatible with downstream equipment is a big part of it. That's kind of our customer's manufacturing process. With respect to our own manufacturing process, we set out two other constraints. One is that we told our scientists they could only use global commodity precursors. We did the math. And if you want all cars to be electric in the future, and I do, you need about a million tons per year of this kind of silicon technology. And so you have to ask the question when you first put any kind of molecule into your reactor, what scale is this molecule produced in in the world today? Because if it's a tiny quantity, even if you get the tech to work, you'll never have the supply chain to do things right. And so, so that was a key constraint for our scientists, which makes it harder. And then the last thing we did was we we constrained our scientists and engineers to use only bulk manufacturing techniques, meaning big volumetric reactors. Think fermenters, right? Think furnaces, think sort of things that are where the output scales in proportion to volume. And, and that's in contrast to planar manufacturing technologies where the output scales in proportion to the area, right? So semiconductors are planar, solar cells are planar, display, glass, all those things are planar. None of those technologies, planar the manufacturing technologies are scalable enough for the needs of of electric vehicles. And so those are sort of getting a little bit in the weeds here for your listeners, but those constraints meant that as we evolved through those 55,000 iterations, we weren't just making something that worked, we're making something that worked and would scale. And it's interesting because you seem to hit the nail on the head with all three constraints, but, uh, you know, today the necessities of having a domestic supply chain and really being hyper-focused on where materials are coming from uh, is now in the news on a daily basis. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, something like 92% of all graphite is either mined or processed in, in China, you know, and that's obviously a huge concentration risk for, for the world. Uh, if that supply, if you start having challenges with that supply, you know, our, our technology really, the, if you kind of go upstream of us, you basically get to sand and energy. And so you can do that anywhere you want. And our technology is also dramatically more efficient. You need about five to six times less on a weight basis than graphite. So when I mentioned, you know, you want all electric vehicles, you want all cars to be electric, you need a million tons of silicon anodes. You'd need five or six million tons of graphite uh, anodes. And so again, you sort of get to get to produce less so that makes it easier to transport, cheaper to transport. You can produce it wherever the lowest cost of energy is, wherever the right sort of, you know, metallurgical grade sand you can get is. That's that's really key. And and that's partly why we're super excited to be building here in North America in the US. The Department of Energy has been incredibly supportive of what we're doing. We we uh we were fortunate to get a hundred million dollar grant last year from from the DOE. And you know, we we expect that we'll build our first gigaplant right here in the US. Yes, you received that $100 million grant from DOE uh, for the facility in Moses Lake, Washington, if I remember correctly. How many gigawatt hours of capacity exactly do you anticipate having there? Is, is there a phase where it, it kind of grows over time? And, and when does that factory become operational? Yeah, uh, it is phased. The award will let us kind of support the first phase, which will be up to about 20 gigawatt hours of equivalent capacity. So again, sort of maybe for, for your listeners, keep in mind, we don't produce the battery, we just produce the anode, but it's still really useful to just think about it in gigawatt hours rather than tons, which which are sort of, you know, less meaningful units. So 20,000 gigawatt hours, which is about, you know, up to 200,000 large EVs, 
that'll be kind of the first phase. And then we're looking at that expansion up to maybe as, as much as 150 gigawatt hours at that site. But, you know, the DOE is really supporting that first phase and we're laser focused on that first phase right now. Gotcha. Are you starting to think about what comes elsewhere beyond uh, Moses Lake and, and East Bay? Or is that, is that too early uh, innings to ask you that question? Yeah, you know, I, I think we, we certainly have ambitions, but it is too early. We're, we're kind of laser focused. It's Moses Lake. It's this first phase. You know, we got to get that right. We're really, we're taking a big scale up step from what we produce in Alameda. It'll be, you know, a hundred times the, the throughput of what we have here in Alameda. And so we got to get it right. And we've done that twice before. You know, we went from lab to pilot, pilot to Alameda commercial, both 100x ballpark scale ups. So we're no strangers to it, but it's a it's a big deal. And uh, when we get that right, uh, and I'll talk about the timing in a second, when we get that right, we can really just copy and paste that production line, that production unit. So what we're getting to that terminal scale where you know a single production line would be able to do you know hundred thousand cars worth of worth of this technology, maybe more. And so we're targeting startup of the facility in the second half of, of 2024, which is late next year. Uh, we're ordering all the equipment now that that's going in. We already have a site. It's 160 acres. There's a 600,000 square foot building there. We've got the power. You know, we're working through all the permitting. We're not quite moving earth yet, but we're not far from it. And the equipment, you know, we've, we've placed the first equipment orders now. So um, that's moving along. Supply chain times are still long. So that's why it's, you know, second half of 24 for startup. And then kind of formal SOP will be in the in the first half of 25, you know, when we actually start delivering commercial product to the cell maker that'll ship in the, you know, Mercedes vehicle, as well as, you know, other vehicles, which we'll, we'll announce in the future. Tell me about that partnership with Mercedes-Benz. They've been a big backer of yours for several years. How did those relationships kind of start and kind of coalesce? Uh, those relationships all start really with proving the technology works. So, you know, back when we first started working with them, was probably in the, um, you know, in 2017, 2018 timeframe, you know, sampling some of our materials, you know, sampling cells that of relevant sizes and form factors, showing that we could achieve that cycle life, right? The challenge with silicon anodes, especially ones that can replace graphite entirely, is getting to that cycle life that automakers want. And so we would we would sample those products, got the technical team really excited and, and bought in and and then had executive alignment. And so in 2019, they they led a, our $200 million financing back then. And that was the beginning of an even closer partnership, building ever larger cells from our, you know, then we brought up our Alameda commercial line, which allowed us to build much larger cells together with them. And as they built confidence, it then turned into the supply agreement, which is which is a really big deal, right? It's it's very different than a development partnership. You know, development partnerships are a dime a dozen. Every battery tech startup has them. Every battery tech startup has an investment from somebody that means nothing when it comes to actually delivering. Um, supply agreements mean there's a platform, means there's a timeline, means there's volumes, there's price. You know, all all the all the things to be a real business. We have to execute against that. But that was definitely a special moment last year, and and Mercedes has been a tremendous partner, and and we look forward to continue to expand that partnership. Who are some of your other key partners? Be they working with you to help deliver specifically for for Mercedes, or perhaps other automakers? If you can if you can talk about them, yeah, we're we're pretty mum on who the various partners we work with are until they want to announce it. So we're very respectful of our customers in in that way. We do work with almost all of the biggest 
five or six cell makers in the world that that matter, kind of what I would call like the top tier battery makers. We work closely with them. We work closely with a lot of their customers. And it's all about building that confidence until you kind of lock in on, okay, this vehicle platform at this volume with this cell maker. So Mercedes gets to select which cell maker they want to integrate Sela technology for their vehicles. Again, that's sort of theirs to announce when the time is right. And, and that's one of the beauties of kind of coming back to what we were saying at the very beginning is because we're compatible with any gigafactory in the world, we can work with any OEM really in any field, but you know, any car maker is the relevant field and kind of say, look, you don't have to change your supply chain. You don't have to change your cell maker. We can go in and drop our stuff into their factory. And, and that's proven to be true. Uh, and, and that's proven to be very powerful because it allows those car makers and and cell makers to maintain their partnerships and if anything kind of strengthen it because now they're they're getting a, a very differentiated performance right so you know the mercedes vehicles will have much better performance than non-mercedes vehicles because of sila and the cell maker that is integrating our technology has expertise now integrating our technology so they're you know they're able to deliver that both for mercedes and and for other customers in the future we're going to take a short break from my conversation with gene for a word from this week's sponsor when we return Gene's going to discuss the other industries Sela's eyeing beyond automotive, and he shares a bit about his time at Tesla. This episode is sponsored by Gentex Corporation, a global technology company that supplies nearly every major automaker with advanced electronic features that optimize driver vision and enhance driving safety. Digital vision features like Gentech's full display mirror, an intelligent rear vision system that uses a custom camera and mirror-integrated video display to optimize a vehicle's rearward view. Connected car features like Homelink, the industry's most widely used and trusted vehicle-based wireless control system that uses radio frequency and or cloud-based wireless control to operate garage doors, gates, home lighting, thermostats, security systems, and other compatible home automation devices all from three buttons, smartly integrated into your vehicle's interior. And dimmable glass features like automatic dimming rear view mirrors that use sophisticated light sensors, proprietary gels, and microprocessor-based algorithms to darken the mirror to the precise level necessary to eliminate dangerous rear view mirror glare. The development and delivery of these features have improved driver convenience and safety around the world. Visit www.gentex.com to check out the latest in digital vision, connected car, and dimmable glass technologies. Hi, I'm Lizzie O'Leary, host of Slate's What Next TBD, a clear-eyed look at technology, power, and the future. From fake news to fake meat, algorithms to augmented reality, we'll guide you through the rapid technological changes that are reshaping our world. Those changes aren't always visible, and they aren't always what they appear to be. That's where TBD comes in. With the help of expert guests, we'll help you parse out what matters, what doesn't, and what's next. Subscribe to What Next TBD in your favorite podcast app. Now back to my conversation with Sela Nanotechnology CEO and co-founder, Gene Berdachewski. So we've talked about automotive, and we've talked about uh, fitness devices, what other industries are you working in or do you aspire to work in? We're somewhat agnostic in the long run. You know, I think if you if you fast forward to 2030, 
we're in every industry where there's a lithium ion battery today, uh, whether it's, you know, consumer electronics, whether it's aerospace, whether it's automotive, but, you know, that's in the long run. Today, we're laser focused on automotive. We think aerospace will be interesting in the future. We think grid will be very interesting. We, we Our technology is able to cycle longer and longer and longer, and we'll have future variants that, that are much more performant than graphite and cycle life. So that's something that I think folks don't think about a lot is that these next-gen technologies can actually enable cycle life that's much, much longer, which is incredibly valuable for grid applications. But that'll all come later. You know, we're, we, we've got to deliver on cars. We've got to deliver on this first factory. The market is so, so large that just delivering on cars is, is what's going to establish us as a business. Certainly seems like there's a lot in the immediate future and ahead. So uh, I'm going to rewind the clock here a little bit and ask you about, you co-founded the company way back in 2011. Uh, and here we are 12 years later. Were you too early or does it naturally take a decade to get to the point where you're you're shipping products? Uh, we weren't too early. I mean, if anything, I, I wish we could have been a little bit ahead. Like we're, we're certainly feeling like we're going to have a lot of work to catch up to the market. By the time we've got you know a million vehicles worth of our production, there'll probably be at least ten or twenty million electric cars in the field, and and our technology can be higher performant and cheaper than graphite. So you you'd think you'd want to use it in every single vehicle, uh, you know, at some point. So we're sort of we're going to be catching up to the market. It was tough for the first nine years, eight years, whatever it was. Uh, capital was very very scarce, but in material science and in technology like this. There's a lot of problems that are solved with time. You know, you can take parallel paths, you can throw a lot of money at it, but the but the thing is, you know, you're looking for a single insight that is going to unlock the next the next step or the next step. And so, you know, there's a lot of things you can't parallelize, if you will, in this kind of um, technology development. So, you know, it, it did take us ten years to reach market. I think if we, you know, we learned a lot. I think with a new materials product, we might be able to do it in maybe six or seven. That's really, you know, an entirely new class of technology based on what we learned. So we certainly made mistakes. We were a startup. We were quite immature in, in how we thought about some of this. Um, we've learned a ton. So I think even even that, you know, if we were much later, we'd still have to learn all those things and we'd be years behind. We're 20 minutes in, Gene, and we haven't even mentioned your time at Tesla yet. So um, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious about, you know, when you were working on the Roadster, was this inflection point that we seem to be at today with with EVs writ large. Was that apparent to you that this was definitely coming way back then or was it more precarious? No, it was 100% apparent. Um, and, I, and I say that, <laughs> I say with a little bit of a chuckle because we certainly all believed it 100%. Now, did we realize maybe how precarious it was? No, uh, but but I think if you know if you polled the first fifty employees, hundred employees, you know the vast majority, uh, especially of sort of the leadership, one hundred percent believed that this is where we were going to be. And as a matter of fact, we all believed we'd be here sooner. And so one of the biggest challenges that we saw, even from you know I was there from from '04 to '08, so really kind of beginning of the roadster, clean sheet of paper to first production units in the field. Even in that four years, we saw the performance of lithium-ion uh, improvements slow down, and we saw the cost reductions slow down. And those two things were very correlated. So that's really the premise of SELA is to say, look, if those trends had continued 
everything would have stalled out and it still might stall out but for these new technologies but for you know all the things tesla announced and are doing in battery day right and but for things like what seal is doing which is compatible with all those innovations you really need to pack a lot more innovation into the into the battery cell to get to a place where again every car can go electric but at this point i see all that innovation on the field it's got to get across the finish line sitting here now it is i i think it's this is completely irreversible i think the markets now believe it's completely irreversible the best oems you know like mercedes who say we're going to be 100% electric by i think they said 2030 it's like they believe it in their bones right i think people used to say stuff like that didn't really believe it um but but i'll tell you they believe it and and so i think what we were a little bit naive to in the early days of tesla was just the goddamn scale of this industry, excuse my my language, but it's just, it, it's something you have to look at it on a spreadsheet, how many zeros you have to keep adding to change the world. And and it's in part because energy, you know, the, the world of energy, I mean, it's trillions of dollars that have to, to change how they behave on an annual basis. I mean, it's nuts. And you, you, you don't have an intuition for it. So you think you're developing something, you think it's going to go gangbusters, and it does. I mean, Tesla's sales have been growing 30 to 50% year over year for over a decade, and it's still tiny compared to the world. So again, it's it's just, it's hard to intuit this stuff. It's hard to appreciate how long it takes to turn over the entire energy infrastructure. You mentioned that, you know, there were certainly mistakes made uh, as you learned in the early days at SELA. Curious about the flip side of that. Uh, in a way, were there, were there lessons learned at Tesla that that you took to SELA that helped you avoid some pitfalls and perhaps move faster? One of the things that I took away from my my time at Tesla was an element of if you want to do something really new, uh, you need to be kind of radically self-reliant. What I mean is, you know, it doesn't mean you need to vertically integrate everything, but you need to be willing to vertically integrate any, anything. And, and you have to be very judicious about those make-buy decisions where do you make this piece of technology, you know, or do you buy it must come from a place of strength, not from a place of weakness. You know, if you sort of say, well, we don't have the expertise in that, so we'll just buy it. Okay. You're making a decision from a place of weakness. If you're saying I'm willing to do anything, whatever it takes is the thing in the, you know, available in the world good enough for what I need or not. Um, and in our case, a lot of that applied to the R and D equipment that we used, we developed and built all of the synthesis equipment that we use to produce our materials. Um, you know, we rely on vendors for subsystems, but we are the system owner. We, we, you know, write all the software that runs our labs, you know, so we created this innovation engine really from scratch in a way that no other company in the world had done before in part because, Hey, we get to be a 21st century materials company. All the others are 20th century materials companies and, you know, no lab notebooks, everything's digital, everything, you know, everything's recorded. You know, I can pull a battery off of test and I can trace back anything anyone's ever done on it and touched and all the file logs and all of that. And so when you have a an improvement that you see in performance, you can trace it back and identify exactly what's driving it. And, and that sort of fidelity, that data fidelity, that system, that platform of innovation was critical. And, and that's a lot like what we had at, at Tesla as well. We were willing to just build anything ourselves and and we largely did. <laughs> So after you finished the Roadster, you chose to go to go back to school and go to Stanford. Could you have just launched your startup 
at that point, um, what did you gain out of going back to school? There's a difference between, as I think about it, and the engineering disciplines and the science disciplines. And I think there's sort of a difference in approach of how you solve problems as an engineer versus a scientist. And the best is when you can marry the two approaches, right? Scientists love to sort of dig deep and understand the fundamentals of a problem. And an engineer loves to kind of understand the space and the design parameters and sort of get to the right answer that'll that'll work in, in the product that's going to ship. And those are a little bit di different approaches. And so I was very much an engineer and I really wanted to understand the science behind energy, behind batteries, behind solar, behind fuel cells, behind all that. So I understood it at an engineering level, at a system level. It's a lot of the work I did at Tesla, mechanical, electrical, firmware type work. But the chemistry, the physics, the material science, the underlying uh, science of all of this uh, is something, a skill set I didn't have. So I, I studied that for a couple of years. And I, you know, I'm, I'm not the scientist here, but I understood enough to identify my co-founder, Professor Glebushin, and sort of understand what, what he had invented and, and really piece his scientific methodologies with, with our other co-founder, uh, Alex Jacobs, and who's a phenomenal engineer who was with me at Tesla. And we sort of kind of married the two approaches. And uh, when you can get those two disciplines working together in harmony, and you give them tools no one else in the world has, you can kind of make a little bit of magic. So I, I don't know that it was, wouldn't say it was all, you know, looking backwards, you can connect those dots. But for me, I was just so deeply curious about the science layer of energy that, that that's what drove me to, to, to study that for a couple of years. Interesting. I'm going to go back even earlier in your life now. As a child, you grew up in the Ukraine. Where did you grow up and when did you immigrate to the United States? Yeah, so, so I was born in Sevastopol, uh, which is in Crimea, and I split time between Ukraine and, and Russia and St. Petersburg. Uh, my family came to the States when I was nine, so I was still relatively young and, and um, really kind of got immersed in the culture here and, you know, and grew up in, in, in Virginia through high school before coming out to California, which, which certainly formed a lot of who I am and um, how I'm driven and how I'm wired. And, you know, I think a lot of kind of our work today around energy, you know, is not going to sort of have a impact on today's conflict that, that exists there. But I think creating sort of this energy and independence for, for really every region, I mean, every region deserves its own energy independence, whether, you know, Europe, China, the US, countries should not be reliant on each other for the most fundamental thing you need for society to function. And I think if we can, if we can sort of decouple, you know, the production of energy to renewables, the use of energy through, you know, electric vehicles, we can create a, a world that that has less of this energy interdependence, which which can, can lead to conflicts like what we're seeing in uh, Russia, Ukraine right now. It does seem like this if there's anything that the conflict has brought home, it's exactly that, that, or, or one of many key things, I guess, is that the next generation energy supply is, is foundational to, to everything. That's right. I mean, you think about the U S and the 20th century and, you know, seventies, we were, we were energy dependent. Uh, it was a really bad place to be. Think about, you know, how many wars we've fought as, you know, whether explicitly or implicitly because of energy, we spent a hundred years, you know, or 50 years catching up, and getting to a place where you know with technologies like fracking and you know and exploiting our own resources at home we could get that energy independence and 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 you know frankly be involved in less conflict but the 21st century is going to have an entirely different uh energy look and feel and and the question is are we 
you know, in the US going to spend, you know, the first 50 years falling behind and then try like crazy to catch up again, or are we just going to do it right the first time? I think we're heading on the better track, but it, you know, not, this is not preordained and and it's going to take a lot of work for, for us to get energy independent in the 21st century, which means renewables production, which means battery production, which means electric vehicle production. Fortunately, we are the most innovative place in the world. People talk about China leading the way on EVs, but they forget. We gave the world Tesla. We started this all. And we're going to bring the next generation of battery technology here. And we're going to produce enough here. And, you know, we we invented most of the things in solar. So I, I think, you know, we need to to double down on, on domestic manufacturing, but we don't have an innovation problem. We're going to lead on innovation. So we just need to make sure that innovation couples into domestic manufacturing through the right government policies, through, you know, entrepreneurs that want to build the right way, through, you know, states that want these jobs and through training programs that kind of reestablish our manufacturing prowess here. It's all very, very doable. It just takes willpower. Curious if there's like a third plank of that that's necessary and it's the, and maybe it falls under the domestic production, but you also need a, you know, mass deployment in some way. And that seems even as the U S has led on innovation before, perhaps China has, been able to take that and deploy at a at a faster scale, and, and certainly because they manufacture a lot, there is one reason why that dynamic occurs. That that's right. I think you know, and and I think making it easier to build in the U.S., getting the right sort of you know permitting setups that shorten the time and increase the certainty of building in the U.S. It's not really, it's not about making it cheaper. It's about shortening the time, which you know makes it cheaper in the cost of capital type of way, but you're not trying to pinch pennies. You're trying to shorten the time and you're trying to make it more predictable. And if we can do that, that's tremendous. It will take time, just like transforming, you know, the auto industry, you don't go from Tesla Roadster to all cars being electric overnight. You know, we have to retrain a lot of manufacturing expertise. It's really hard to find, you know, awesome manufacturing engineers, awesome operational leaders in the US right now because because a lot of that's gone away. But as younger leaders grow up and you know become more senior in their careers you know we're, we're, we can reestablish it we just have to stay committed to it for 10 or 20 years this is not a flash in the pan you don't just compile some code and all of a sudden you've got a manufacturing facility right and i think we have to be willing to to just stay committed to that and it doesn't mean the government has to pay for all of it either we again make it predictable shorten the timelines on a lot of these things the us has some of the lowest cost of energy in the world and the cost of energy is one of the most fundamental pieces of having great manufacturing, right? So a lot of like chemicals manufacturing, you know, some of that's going to come back to the U.S., especially now that Europe's going to have very high cost of gas. We're going to have a very low cost of gas. You should produce more here. Technologies like ours, we're powered by hydro up in, you know, off the Columbia River, very low cost electricity and green so we just need to keep pushing on that, you know, domestic solar, if we can make it cheaper to deploy utility scale, those those type of things will naturally create an environment where it makes a lot more sense to put a factory in the U.S. Gene, this has been great. Thank you uh, so much for the time today. Really appreciate you coming on the podcast. You bet. Thanks for having me, Pete. Really appreciate it. All right. Great to learn more about Sila's work and Gene's path from the Ukraine right through Tesla and grad school. We'll certainly take him up on that offer to come back and do this again sometime. But that is it for today. Uh, if you liked this episode with Gene and you like to shift podcast overall, 
please give us a like on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you again to Gene for his time today. Thank you for being here. We'll be back next week. 